invite you to turn the Word of God to Luke chapter 6 this evening. Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, as we continue on going through the gospel of Luke. The Word of God always has something for us, a message for us, and I trust tonight will be no different. We're going to commence reading at verse number 20, Luke chapter 6, verse number 20. I'll read a few verses here. I'm sure familiar to many. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye, when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you, when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 26. Let's still our hearts in prayer. I invite you to bow your heads and your hearts with us before the Lord. Lord, help us when we sing to mean the words that we sing. Oh, that it would be enough to have Christ. Just to have Christ. To be satisfied. To be delivered from the discontentment that often afflicts our souls. Be delivered from the wavering frame that wants one thing, then seeks after another, and constantly finds a lack of true contentment in what we possess. Oh, that we would know the treasure that is Jesus Christ, and that we would truly understand by faith what it is to have Him. To have Him as our God. To have Him as our Savior. To have Him as our Mediator. To have Him as our Redeemer. And to have Him as our friend. Oh God, 
teach us thy ways. Help us to see the glory of Christ afresh tonight. Minister to every heart, not merely by the spoken word of a man, but by the Spirit of God taking the word, making it effectual, making it a word and season. Extend thy kingdom through the means thou hast appointed and save those who stubbornly sit in unbelief. O God of mercy, in Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have perhaps one of the more well-known portions of the Word of God. In fact, in those chapters, we have what has often been called the greatest sermon ever preached. It is, of course, a sermon on the mount. And when we read Luke chapter 6, one of the immediate questions that comes to mind when we come to the portion that we're looking at this evening is, well, is this the same event? Are we looking at exactly the same time and place that we have in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, where Matthew records there for us what occurred on that occasion? And when you begin to read, not just the passage, but then you consult those that have written and studied and given their commentaries, you realize, well, like many other portions, there's not a single consensus. There's not a one, a unity of mind on this matter. For example, some of the well-known names to many of you, Matthew Poole, J.C. Ryle, think that this is different from Matthew chapter 5, and they argue their case briefly. But on the other hand, we have Matthew Henry and John Calvin who think they are the same. And again, they argue their case relatively briefly, stating the point that they believe this to be the same, and arguing that the slight diversity, little changes here and there, are really not in any way, in a meaningful sense, helping us to see that this is a different event. So, you have these varied opinions. And whatever the case, we have our Lord Jesus Christ on this occasion, here in Luke chapter 6, And I I am inclined to think it is the same event. I think Luke's emphasis is slightly different, and the details that he gives, they're more brief overall, but he also includes some things that that Matthew does not include. But he is is pulling it all together. Like much of the Gospel of Luke, there, there 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 is a case being built. There's a presentation of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that is aiming towards something, that has an intended goal. Luke is not detailing everything. Neither was Matthew for that matter. In fact, John says that it was impossible to record everything concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The books of all the world could not contain everything properly uh, fulfilled. And if you try to detail all the, the, the events and all the consequences and all that was said and concerning him, it's impossible. But what we have here is for our help, as is all the Word of God. And the Lord Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So again, the context where we were last time is somewhat relevant, I think. And you have him coming and standing with the great company of the disciples, with the apostles, the great multitude. And with this multitude, no doubt still there, he directs his attention to his disciples. Now, if you were here last week, I think that's helpful for us to consider because 
what I said to you was there's, 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 there are contrasts here in the groups given. You have, of course, the contrast between those of Judea and Jerusalem and those of the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, some that were familiar with the, the language of religion, with the Scripture, with the Word of God, with all the themes and teachings. Some of these things would be very familiar to them. And then those of Tyre and Sidon, they would not be as familiar with some of the things the Lord would be saying or some of the discussion that would be happening around the events and activity of our Lord. They would be less familiar. And then, of course, the contrast between the apostles, the twelve, and the disciples. The twelve, by and large, were committed, with the exception of Judas. They had wholly given themselves to follow Christ. Christ for me. They had made that decision. They had given themselves to a a, a complete commitment to Christ. But his disciples, the broader company of the disciples, were by and large not that way. He said that last week. And it's that company then that he puts his gaze upon. He fixes his gaze onto them. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Now, if I was the Lord, which of course I am not, but there is therefore this focus upon those that you know are by and large lacking commitment. They're those that are divided. They haven't fully settled. And they have shown a lack of the commitment that is evidenced by the apostles. And so these individuals, they they have certain things to learn. And the language of our Lord and what He deals with here is very helpful. When you read through what is often called the Beatitudes, it's important for us to understand the Lord is presenting the characteristics of those that are truly His people. They are characterized by that which we find here as well as that which is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 5. And you need to understand what I'm saying. These characteristics do not make them the Lord's people, but as the Lord's people, they reflect these characteristics. They are the Lord's. And because they are His, He works in them. And He works in them to accomplish His purposes and bring out of them the characteristics given. And again, it's not like, well, some people have this particular characteristic and others have that particular characteristic. The intention is all the Lord's people reflect all of these characteristics. It's like Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. None of us can get to a point where we say, well, my gift is to love, but I'm not so good at the long-suffering. I just kind of ignore that aspect of Christian character. That, that's, we know that's not the case. We understand it is the fruit, singular, so often misspoken uh, that we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, but it's not. It's the fruit. There's a singular fruit in the nine characteristics that are given, the nine graces that are evidenced and are meant to be evidenced by the Lord's people, produced by the Spirit of God. And since it is the same Spirit in each one of the Lord's people, He works to produce, yes, to greater and lesser degrees in each of us, But he works to produce all of these things in our lives. And so it is here with the Beatitudes. They are expressions of characteristics that will be found in some fashion in everyone who is genuinely the Lord's. And so Christ's intention 
is to use these characteristics that are found in his people to confirm and convict those that are standing before him. To those that are the Lord's people, there's a sense in which, rightly understood, this will confirm them. It will encourage them to see that I don't have all of that, but I definitely know something of that. It's not pride, it's, just, it's a recognition of what the Spirit of God is producing in your life. You don't wear a banner that boasts of your accomplishments, but, but there's a sense in which the Spirit confirms within your soul, this is occurring in my life. You have been there if you're a child of God. You know that sense of, I, I'm not there, I know I'm not there, but I know it's being produced. I know there's something of that being worked in my life. And so it confirms in the hearts of those that are truly the Lord's that they are indeed His. And on the flip side, it convicts. It convicts those that are not where they ought to be. And so the Lord is using these characteristics that are found in His people in an evangelistic manner as well as to encourage those of His people. But I think as He focuses upon His disciples, that that greater crowd of disciples, there is an evangelistic intent. If you go to the end of the chapter, I think that's driven home. When you, when you Sometimes you maybe need to get to the end of a sermon before you see the point of the whole thing. Well, if that can help at times, and it does, if we come to the end of our Lord's sermon, here, verse 46 of Luke chapter 6, we're told, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." And if that's where the Lord's headed, with a very sharp call for men to discern, to make a decision, to try and weigh up within their minds, upon what kind of foundation am I building? And that's a question for you, and we'll get there, God willing. But even at this stage, when you realize where the Lord is going, where He is headed, to even at this stage ask where do I stand? Am I truly on the rock? Am I built on Christ? Do I have the Word of God producing fruit in my life? Do I hear the Word and endeavor to do it? Do I love the Word? Is my response to Scripture something that is lively? Or is there a deadness? I hear the Word, but have a kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude. So, the Lord, as I say, is presenting these characteristics that are found in His people when He refers to the Beatitudes, that is, and is driving at helping those that are before Him to see where they are. It's what the preacher does. 
He preaches for a verdict. You don't just throw the truth out there and leave it. Just, here's what the truth is, here's what the Bible says, and just leave it hanging there. That's what, I think that is so, so much missing in much preaching today. It's like men are afraid to take the word and drive it with intentionality into the heart. That's not what the Lord did. And it's not what any preacher should do. Just throwing truth out there as a kind of take it or leave it manner. It is to take it and to drive it home. It is to call men to repentance. It is to expose the corruption of their hearts. It is to wage warfare. Seek to bring the truth with power to the souls of those that are before you. Beloved, I'm like every preacher, we're very aware of our weaknesses. But as God gives us strength, we'll continue to just keep battling. The battlements that are put up around the heart of the unbelieving, that we'll just keep waging war against them. And bring the truth with all of our might. May the Lord's people, may you pray, may you pray that the Spirit of God will do what only the Spirit of God can do. And pull down all those walls and barriers of unbelief. And break in upon the unbelieving still in the ranks of this congregation. The challenge of the Beatitudes is that it calls us to die to ourselves. It really does. Each one of them, whether we read those that are given by Matthew or the, the fewer that are given here, it is a call to die to ourselves. And when you, when you read them, it, they're, it's, they're impossible. In one sense, blessed be ye poor. Blessed are ye that hunger now. Blessed are ye that weep now. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. And when they shall separate you from their company. And shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil. I mean, Christ here, he elevates poverty. He elevates hunger. He elevates sorrow. And he elevates rejection. As that which is worthy it has worth in it. And on the flip side, he will go on to, to give the, the four woes that are in contrast to them, where he gives woes in relation to riches and abundance and happiness and popularity. And it doesn't make any sense because if any of us find ourselves in a condition of poverty, if we have any strength at all, we try to work ourselves out of it. Or if we find ourselves in a place of hunger, again, we seek to work ourselves out of it, do what we can to alleviate the hunger pangs. Or the same for sorrow, the same for rejection. These are not things that we seek for. And yet the Lord says, blessed are ye. Blessed be ye poor, so on and so forth. I tell you, it, it, is a, it really deals a, a blow to the carnality of our natural frame. I want us just to pause over verse 24 this evening and consider the poverty of God's people. The poverty of God's people. And just two main points. The first being the characteristic of poverty. The characteristic of poverty. When you read through the Word of God, you'll find that there are diverse forms of poverty in the Scripture. You'll find that people are poor because of catastrophe. 
things happen outside of their control that plunge them into a place of poverty. You think of farmers that have their crops destroyed or those that, because of famine, are unable to grow their crops or those that are impoverished because of disease. These are certain catastrophic events that may bring those that otherwise were doing fine into a position of catastrophe and into a place of poverty. These, these are things that we see even in the Word of God. One example, you remember the widow of Zarephath? Famine has come upon the land and we get a little glimpse into her life and she just has a, just, just enough to live a little longer but... There is inevitability written all over the circumstances. They're going to die. We're just to almost nothing because of famine. That happens. In fact, the Lord at times is, is pleased to do that. Pleased to bring catastrophe. He is in calamity. The Word of God makes that plain. And when you think even of the context of which we're thinking, the widow... Zarephath, and how did it all come about? <laughs> but a man was praying, praying that God would shut the heavens. The prophet of God is praying, and uh, you know, this is a side issue, but you can ponder it yourself. When the man of God was so desperate for God to revive his work, when he was at a point where he saw the desperate need for the people to turn back to God, he was willing to pray for economic tragedy in order to turn the hearts of the people. He was going to suffer as well, and so he did. He had to live by faith, trusting the Lord that he would provide. But he was willing to pray. I mean, you do not pray, shut up the heavens without understanding the consequences of such a prayer. And as I've said before, I think maybe in the prayer meetings, at some point, touching on that subject, he was praying according to the Word of God. He was going through the judgments that are given in the law, and he's, he's realizing that when God's people turn away from the Lord, then this is something God promises to do. He will shut up the heavens there will be famine, and there will be these catastrophic events in order to humble Israel. And so here, I, I, I often think of him, when I come to that passage, I think of this man who appears on the scene out of nowhere. But months prior, he has gotten before God, he is reading the Word of God, and he is looking at the circumstances of his day, and he is brought to a point, I don't know how long it took him to get to that point, but brought to a point to realize this is what you've promised to do, God. And this is the need of the day. And I am willing to pray. And he begins to pray that God would shut the heavens. That's like asking for the worst market crash in the history of the country. Where everybody loses everything. That's what Elijah prayed for. Let everyone lose everything. That'll get their attention. God has done it. At other occasions as well. He brings catastrophe. 
to the lives of men and women. Sometimes in the Word of God we see that, that people are poor because of cruelty, not because of catastrophe, but because of cruelty. They find themselves enslaved or oppressed by the government. And again, you, you see the rise of evil men and the oppression upon the people and how they suffer. And much of that at times would have brought them to poverty as well. He, he didn't reach a point of poverty, but you can think of Ahab and Naboth. And how the wretched king is going, I'll have that vineyard. He sets his eyes upon it. He's going to have it. And he takes it. That's the kind of repression that sometimes governments and leaders come and how they rule and reign in that way, that evil, corrupt, oppressive way that can at times bring those under their rule and reign into a condition of poverty. Cruel men, ruling and reigning, There's also poverty because of carelessness. Scripture talks about that too. The kind of slothfulness that leads to poverty. Proverbs is filled with verses. Just one example. Proverbs 20 verse 13. Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Open thine eyes, and thou shalt be satisfied with bread. And the simple instruction is, give yourself to labor, and poverty will not be a problem for you. Put your hand to the work, do what is before you, and this condition of poverty will not be a problem you will face. And then there is, fourthly, poverty because of commitment. Poverty can come because of commitment. You can make certain choices at times that leads to poverty. You think of the apostles that were before the Lord. Later on, Peter is to declare... And Luke 18, verse 28, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And they had. We pointed out in Luke chapter 5 how on perhaps the greatest day of business success in Peter's entire life, he commits himself to follow Christ. When the circumstances were encouraging him to continue on in business, that things are prospering and things are doing well, at that point, he leaves it all follow Christ. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to, in some fashion, enter into God's work to at times be making a decision that you know, or at least in all things being equal, you know that as I make this decision, I have absolutely no clue about my economic future. But you make the decision because you do it in obedience to God. And you leave houses and lands and family and friends. You do it for Christ. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Peter and those that were with him, they didn't have much. But they were willing to sacrifice everything for the Lord. But while that is the case, and poverty is a real experience, and really, when you read Luke's account here, he said, blessed be ye poor. When you read Matthew, he says, blessed be, he talks about, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. And if Calvin, Henry, and myself as well, I think, 
are right. And this is the same. Luke is, has left out the in-spirit bit. And, and it makes us focus then upon the, the natural poverty, but, but the meaning is the same. The Lord here is not issuing a call that every Christian must be in some form of temporal poverty in order to know blessing. That you have to be there in a condition of poverty, temporal poverty, I mean, in order to be blessed. That is highly unlikely and highly doubtful. Scripture is replete with references that encourage us to actually not be in a condition of poverty. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, is very instructive. Where, as Paul instructs those at the church there, and some of it you marvel, why does this even need to be said? But let him that stole steal no more. Well, there's, 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 there's one aspect. Stop stealing. <laughs> That's not the way to gain wealth. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. So there's the positive. Stop stealing, start working. But it is not, and this, this, is, this is a good economic principle here. Because there are some today even have this mindset that they work simply to make ends meet, and they're satisfied with that. They're content simply, and I'm not saying that, I'm not encouraging a discontent spirit here, but what I'm saying is that, that some can have in their mind I only, what I need to get by is this amount. I can do that in 15 to 20 hours of work. I'm not going to work the rest. I can't be bothered. And I have not, no interest in it. Because as long as they meet their own needs, they're content. They're happy. That's, that's enough for them. And perhaps even within the, among the Lord's people, there may be that mentality. As long, as long as I meet my needs, I don't care so much. But that's not what the text says. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. That he may have abundance to give to others that do not have abundance at particular seasons of life. That a man is called to labor, and again, providing in the providence of God and the leading of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord and all of that, there's not to be a limitation upon income in a way that is, really is because of laziness and idleness or indolence or whatever. If there is the opportunity in balance of all things to earn more, we should, that we may have to give to him that needeth. So instead of stealing from people, you're laboring to provide for yourself and for your family and surplus to give. This is, this is biblical economics 101. Simple truths that in our increasingly socialistic mindset, we think, well, what's the point? It's all going to Uncle Sam. It's going to be put into it's like Proverbs 1. Let us all have one purse. Let's all pull it in together. I was saying to the college and career this morning, it's like Bernie Sanders kind of statement there. Like, let us all have one purse. Let's pull it all in together. It's unbiblical. It's not scriptural. Without getting into more aspects of economics, let's understand that the Lord doesn't want His people, He doesn't will all His people to be in a condition of poverty. 
That would be a wrong conclusion to take from this. And yet at the same time, there is a contentment in the Lord's people, especially, especially as they look to their Savior. Blessed be ye poor. How can you not, how can you read that and not think of the Lord? But the challenge of the text of, of there's some, there's, there's, a, there's a poverty that the Lord is saying is encouraged and is blessed. The one who's uttering the words himself is the most glorious example of poverty, a blessed poverty. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Whenever you look at this particular verse, you want to think not just of the diverse forms of poverty in the Scriptures, you want to think of the definition of poverty in this text. Blessed be ye poor. What do you think when you read that word, poor? How, how do you, what level of poverty comes to your mind? The word that is used here is not intended to make you think of someone struggling to make ends meet. It's not someone who's living paycheck to paycheck. That's, that's not, it's not the word the Lord uses here. The sense of the word is one that is reduced to begging. Someone who lives day by day depending entirely upon the kindness of others. Someone who has nothing, absolutely nothing, and day by day begs for provision. That is clearly not, in the temporal sense, what Christ says, this, you have to be in this state to be truly be a blessed people. But it is something that is to be known in the hearts of every child of God in spirit. What is the gospel but a presentation of God doing everything necessary for sinners? Divine recognition that every sinner is a beggar. That every sinner is devoid of righteousness and is empty in terms of any value that would bring them into heaven and before God. God recognizes that. God understands that the whole plan of salvation is the acknowledgement, the divine acknowledgement that men are utterly lost in the worst condition of poverty imaginable, a beggarly state. They, they have nothing, nothing, not a cent to offer in terms of merit before God. And Christ is teaching here that the characteristic of His people is this poverty spirit, as is more clearly revealed in Matthew chapter 5. They are brought to a place, those who are his, they have been brought to a place where they know themselves to be spiritual beggars. By the recognition of their sin, they know they are in a place of being a beggar. They have nothing. 
When I say nothing, I mean nothing to offer to God. No merit, no good, no works of any kind, of any sort. They have nothing. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In this wonderful epistle, in chapter 3, the apostle gives something of a autobiography of his life, a little insight into his own experience. And we'll read from verse 4. He speaks of those who, those are truly the Lord's. In fact, go back to verse 3, it helps with the context, it's important. We are the circumcision. We are truly, our hearts have truly been circumcised. They've truly been changed, transformed. The new birth is our experience, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Zero confidence. No confidence at all. In the flesh. And then he develops this. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. As he details all of this, he presents a man with a most advantageous position. If a man had something to impress God, Paul says, I had it. I had everything one could desire in terms of having something to say, look how impressive is my stock, my works, my diligence, my position, my lineage. But as he said in verse 3, those who truly know the Lord, they have no confidence in the flesh. And in verse 7, he acknowledges, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul's acknowledgement here is, I have been brought to a place where I know I have nothing. I don't have anything. All that I, I prided myself in, all that seemed significant, everything that others remarked upon, all that appeared to be so eminent in the eyes of some others, and even in my own mind, all those things I come to understand when I see the emptiness of it all and the glory of Christ, I take this position of being in a condition and place of poverty. I have nothing. And what I am craving after, what I rest in, what I lay hold upon is Christ, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Do you have that? Do you have the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Do you know Christ? 
you talk to people sometimes. You, you, are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I've, I go to church. That, that's not what I asked. That's not my concern. Do you know Christ? The excellent knowledge of Christ, the saving knowledge of Christ, the life-transforming knowledge of Christ. If you haven't that, you are a beggar and you don't know it. You're, you're imagining something else will satisfy God and you're deluded, utterly deluded. He says the same, basically in Romans 7 verse 9, again accounting his own experience, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I was alive, I was, I was proud, I, I felt myself to have all that I needed. But when, when my conscience was struck by the law of God, when sin became alive within my life, when I stopped considering myself to be blameless, I died. I died. I shrunk away in despair. Nothing to offer God. No hope, oh wretched man that I am. Here, here the Lord says, Blessed be ye poor. Blessed, happy, not just happy. This condition of not just happiness, it is that, but a condition of favor. Divine favor. God has favored you when you know yourself to be a beggar. When you know that you have nothing to offer Almighty God. When you become aware that your best efforts will never do. You are favored. Conviction is a glorious thing. The enlivened conscience that becomes aware of the lost condition of the soul. What a glorious state it is. Oh, not to stay there, of course. Not to remain there. But what a glorious state and condition to be in when for the first time you feel the weight of sin. And you become aware of your separation from God. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a feeling, there's a sense that you never had before. Whereas before, you, you drifted through life, carefree as anyone else. And then all of a sudden, there's an unsettling, a discontentment, an awareness that you're lost. Should you die, you will perish. Everlastingly. This flies in the face of everything in our culture today. And the older folks maybe have seen glimpses of this. But the young people are just, you're so immersed in this. 
that even someone relatively young like myself (laughs) gets a a shock every now and again. When we were in Calgary, we were invited to a graduation ceremony, a high school graduation ceremony. And you have to understand that in the UK, we don't really do graduation the way you do in North America. Uh, We don't graduate from elementary. We, We just move into high school. And we don't graduate from high school, we just go into university. You do a degree, you'll, you'll graduate, we'll call that a graduation, and there'll be a graduation ceremony, and all those who graduate, they'll be there, but they won't really be involved. You won't, you'll, you'll go up and you'll pass, a, go across the platform, pick up your degree and walk off the stage, and there's not much uh, in terms of student involvement, but went to this high school graduation in Calgary, and it was very different. You would have thought that that year group was the answer to global hunger, world peace, and the remedy for every disease on earth, that they were just going to change the world. And it wasn't so much even in what was said, it was more the spirit and the vanity in which it was said. Like, 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 like the world owes them something, like, like the world's just waiting for them to come on the scene. And, and this, this is normal language today. This, this is what your young people are faced with. They, they come to church, they sit in Sunday school, and, and we're, sit at home and you're trying to teach them and instruct them. And realize that you're militating against a worldview that is indoctrinating them to, to think themselves to be the, the one person the whole world and generation is waiting for, for them to come on the scene and change the world. That's what they're faced with. That's what's going on. What does Jesus say? Blessed be ye poor. Blessed are you that know yourself to be beggars. No trust in the flesh. No confidence therein. No sense of your worth. No boast in your attainments. No, no, the complete contrary. You lay low in the dust. You comprehend the majesty of God. And in comparison, you're barely a worm. And you get before Almighty God and you beg. You beg for mercy. You beg for forgiveness. You beg for pardon. Blessed be ye poor. Are you there? Secondly, very quickly, the condition promised. The condition promised. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Those with absolutely no reliance on themselves, trusting in Christ, are brought into a kingdom, a kingdom where there is no want at all. Where even in the face of the greatest tragedies and the most difficult experiences, there's a sovereign who rules and reigns and governs and controls, counsels, encourages, 
leads and provides every need. You're in the kingdom of God. You don't need all that the world clamors after because you have what is the greatest need of your heart. Your greatest need as a sinner is not wealth, intelligence, gift, attainment, recognition. It is Christ. And since you have Christ, you're brought to that place of being in a impoverished spirit. You know yourself to be who you really are. You're awakened to it. To such is the kingdom of God. What a blessing. You have Christ reigning over all things and working all things together for good. Without exception. It takes faith to believe it at times. We want to control events. We want to govern affairs. But the impoverished, the beggar, the beggar doesn't set the rules. The beggar doesn't dictate the terms. The beggar receives and is satisfied. Whatever the weather, whatever the hardship, whatever the struggle, they receive it. With gratitude, with acceptance, with humility, with resignation. See, they have Christ as a mediator in this kingdom, mediating on their behalf. They have Christ as a lawgiver, not some tyrant. They have Christ ruling in perfect equity. Christ is the provider. Matthew, in his account, of course, will, will, will deal with the practical affairs of life, will deal with the stresses and strains of material want. I say, don't be like the Gentile. Don't be like the unbeliever who seek for these things. They, they seek after that. They're, they're constantly seeking the material. But my people have the characteristic that they seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness. All these things will be added onto them. All their needs will be met. The king knows. And as his word rules in our hearts, we begin to understand, you know what? Though a beggar by nature, in Christ, I am seated in heavenly places. I am a king and a priest unto God. I want position. I want power. What more could I ask for if I am reigning with Christ? All that our eyes would be open to see what the Lord has provided for us in himself. I just heard the news 
this afternoon of the tragic death of Kobe Bryant. I don't follow basketball closely, haven't for many, many years. A bit more in the Jordan era, whenever I was a little interested in basketball. But even if you're not interested, almost everybody's heard the name. Amassed a wealth of hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions. 500, 600, 700 million, who knows? As I heard that, my mind went straight to the psalm we read this morning. Psalm 49. How providential. Luke 6, verse 20. Psalm 49 this morning. Verse 6 and 7. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. All the wealth in the world is incapable of aiding those that are spiritual beggars. The only one who can help is Christ. You look all around the world and the tragedy of it. I, have, I know nothing about the man. I know nothing about his life. I know nothing about his soul. I know nothing. But at 41 years of age, to he and his daughter and those that were with him launched into eternity. Think of the words of the Lord. When people ask, why did the tower fall? Why do these things happen? And he simply says, repent. Repent. When these things happen, when tragedy befalls, Repent. The psalmist says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. Only God can redeem the soul from the power of the grave. And this is why the work of preaching the gospel is so utterly crucial. Because you can get everything your heart desires. You can get every wish you might ever offer. Every single thing you could ever put your gaze upon, you could get it all. I still have nothing. No Christ. No hope. May God help us all to understand. Let's bow together in prayer.
you're here tonight and you're beginning to sense the poverty of your own soul, beginning to become aware of the fact that you're lost, you're utterly lost. You have no real ground for hope. You've never been saved. As tenderly as I can say to you, in God's name, seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't hesitate another moment. Don't delay another minute. Seek the Lord. And if I can be of help to you, just let me know. Our God and Father, it's sobering to think of how suddenly someone can be here in the world and then gone and gone forever. As the headlines are taken up by this tragic news, God sober the minds and hearts of men. Help young people to see, especially the young, filled with their dreams, filled with carnal hopes, and don't understand that when Christ is set before them, they have they have the greatest gift of all, there to be claimed, there to be trusted in. No doubt there are some even here tonight and they need to be sobered in mind and in soul. No doubt much of their conversation this week will certainly at the, tomorrow and the days ahead that we'll talk about this. And yet, I pray that they will think, think soberly about their own condition and repent of their own sins, lest they too also perish. Go with us, Lord, as we leave this place, we're thankful for the fellowship that is before us. Bless that time. We thank you for the food provided and for the kindness of all those that participate in this. Be with us downstairs in all our conversation. May the Spirit be amongst us all and take us to your homes with thy grace in our hearts and thy presence in our lives and lead us through the week that is ahead. Hear these our prayers and may the grace of our Lord Jesus, love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.